Well, it's connective tissue disease, which also predisposed me, and they don't know why this happens, but it happens for a lot of people, to this serious blood autoimmune disease. It's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome with mast cell disease. And because they're both so rare, they're considered orphan diseases because they mm-hmm. get very little funding and there's no cure. And so it's been a very, it took me a very long time to get diagnosed. After I was diagnosed, it was both exciting and then extraordinarily terrifying because suddenly you have a prognosis, you have, you know, you're going to die by this age. This is how you're going to die. And for me, it's always been about holding that information lightly and saying, you know, anything is possible. If we commit to one story, we'll live that story. Mm. And I think one of the interesting things for me has been pairing. So Ehlers-Danlos is connective tissue. It's collagen. It's my joints. It's my aorta. It's my skin. It's my veins, my eyes. And I've always loved mushrooms and mycelium. Mm -hmm. And they are the connective tissue of the soil and the connective tissue of the plants and the forest. So, and they are also undervalued and underfunded and we are degrading the soil with pollutants and with clear cutting. So for me, it's about pairing that condition really intimately with a larger and also much smaller (laughs) microscopic life form Mm -hmm. so that my survival is also intimately connected with something else's survival. And I think that that's actually a really helpful thing to do, which is to wed yourself to something else, to wed your story, your survival with something else. Welcome to the Revelation Project podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Revelation Project podcast. Today, I'm with Sophie Strand. I've been following Sophie for a while on Facebook, and I have grown to love her perspective and her writings. And on a whim, I invited her to be a guest on the podcast because, again, I have just fallen in love with what she has been sharing with the world. And so I'm going to read a little bio, and then I'm going to introduce Sophie. So Sophie Strand is a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. Her books of poetry include Love Song to a Blue God and Those Other Flowers to Come. And she's also written a book called The Approach. She has recently finished a work of historical fiction that offers an eco-feminist revision of the Gospels. Her book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Lichenized Lovers, Transspecies Magicians, and Rhizomatic Harpists Heal the Masculine is forthcoming from Inner Tradition's imprint Sacred Planet. Follow her on Facebook or on Instagram at Cosmogony. Is that right, Sophie? Yeah. Okay. I was like, how how does one say that? Yeah. Cosmogony. Awesome. So, hey, Sophie, welcome. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, And thank you so much for reading my work. I mean, putting it out there so publicly lately has been kind of a, a wild shot, but it's meant a lot to connect with other interesting people. Yeah. Well, I can only imagine because, you know, some of your writing, what I've been really loving about it is it's really 
not only is it provocative, but it's beautiful and lyrical and poetic and so visual. Like I tend to get a lot of visuals when I read your writing. And I recently loved what you shared about time and the snake and being on the run. So I wondered maybe if you could just start with that quick story for our listeners. Sure. Yeah. I'll try and do it as as succinctly as possible. So about a month or so before quarantine, all of my life plans melted and then quarantine began. And I was kind of initiated into this state of feeling like all of my narratives had broken down and my sense of timeliness, of being on time, of, of working on a schedule no longer applied. And that, that was happening on a macroscopic level globally, but it was also happening on a very microscopic subjective level. And, you know, I had very serious chronic illness and I've had moments in my life where everything melts and I have to restructure. So I kind of, I understood the flavor of what was happening, but it didn't make it any easier. Um, so, and I, I, I was walking for hours, running for hours, and um, I lived alone, I, a, a long-term relationship that had actually been an engagement had just broken down and I was completely alone, not seeing anyone quarantining by myself. But I started to have these strange experiences with animals, which I usually do, but they were really amplified. And one of them was that I would be walking and a feather would be falling and I would hold out my hand and it would fall into my hand. And it was a kind of uncanny experience of not shifting my pace, not running, not slowing down. It just fell into my hand. And I kept doubting myself. I'm like, I kept thinking, am I on time? Am I doing the correct things? I feel like I'm out of sync with human time, with linear, causal, progressive time. Um, But the feathers kept falling. And I kept trying to trust that I was moving at the right speed. (laughs) But then I had a kind of amplified, very electric version of that, which is I was walking down my favorite local mountain. It's a long hike. You're, you know, when you get up to the top, you're several hours from civilization and you're out of service. And I was, you know, I, I've seen rattlesnakes up there. I've encountered them, but I was basically running down the mountain, moving at a pretty high speed, really feeling in flow. And something made me stop and look backwards. And the second I looked forwards, there was a huge rattle and this eight or nine foot rattler, which I'd only heard about, I didn't believe that it existed on the mountain, had come out and was right in front of my foot. And if I had kept running and hadn't done that instinctual turn back, I would have stepped right on the rattler. And she, because the big ones are apparently the she's, the females, circled me three times. Wow. She, and I, I've never been more filled with adrenaline in my entire life. I was doing the <laughs> mental calculation. I was, I was thinking like, if I get bit, do I have time to get down? Like, what am I supposed to do? But she left. She poured herself back into the greenery and I ran down the mountain. <laughs> she like circled you three times though. And then like she was complete, yeah. right? And like slithered yeah. off into unbelievable. It was erotic. Yeah, it was crazy. And at that same time, you had caught a feather? Like what? Mm, no. Or, or you were kind of in an inquiry about time and then, and then the snake incident happened. I'm definitely still in this kind of trying to uncouple, decolonize my idea of time. Yeah. And, you know, time isn't necessarily linear. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily just move forward. I've been reading a lot about quantum physics. Me too. 
I've been reading the work. Uh, it's so fascinating. <laughs> it is. And what, you know, it's interesting, the book I am actually reading, I, I want to, I'm going to mess up the exact name, but it, it has the word revelation. It's like quantum revelation huh, in yeah. it, right? And it's this, and of course, it's so I think the re- sometimes I have to read it with the back of my head. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh-huh. yeah. I can, let it just pull, come in. Right. Yeah. Let it just come in because otherwise if I, because going back to time and linear, right? Yeah. Like if I try to linearly kind of understand it, I can't. But if I just, just read it knowing that like some part of me understands it, I, I'm fine and I'm fascinated. Otherwise I get kind of like all wrapped up around like, what, what? But yeah, it's been like just... I love what you're saying about time because I too have had moments in my life where time hasn't been, what would I say? Time hasn't been a satisfactory, (laughs) (laughs) you know, measurement or a way to be like, I haven't been able to be with it in a certain way. And and it's hard for me to even have language for it, which is one of the reasons I'm so attracted to your work is because you have this way of really bringing language to things that I think is very magical and very unique. And like, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. When you, when you write about it. Well, thank you. I mean, I think I, you know, one of my main tenets of what I try to do with my writing is to explain those uncanny moments where the language stops. Mm-hmm. You know, for a person who writes, I'm often wordless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it takes years to arrive at the right way of describing something that I feel like leaves me speechless. Yeah. Well, what I loved, I think, the word that you used when you were talking about time and the experience with the snake was you used the word embrace. Did you not? Yeah, I did. Because I was thinking about, I've been thinking a lot about spiralic time, circular time, the Ouroboros, the snake that eats its tail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so great. And and it was it like in that moment being embraced in that circular motion by the snake, kind of telling you like you're yeah. exactly where you need to be. Yeah. So great. All right. So there's so much I want to dive into, but Help me understand why the Gospels, why your fascination with the divine masculine and the divine feminine. Help me understand. So I was raised by two spiritual scholars who write about the history of religion. Mm -hmm. And so I I grew up in a compost heap of like rabbis, theologians, monks, nuns, also a lot of animals, (laughs) a lot of animals. You know, my bedtime stories were, you know, Ovid, the Tibetan book of of the dying, this was the stuff that I was kind of educated on and raised yeah, on. Yeah. I've, and so I've always been interested in spirituality and the history of religion, but it's interesting. I was not very attracted to Christianity and I, my aunt by marriage is Israeli and a lot of the holidays I actually observed were Jewish. <laughs> and so I wasn't Jewish, but I, you know, I had a very Jewish experience growing up with my cousins and my aunts and my uncle and that whole Israeli side of the family that I actually have gone to Israel and stayed with them for an extended period of time. So I kind of came to Christianity eventually by way of Judaism, which mm-hmm. is an interesting kind of off-center route. But it happened, I got extraordinary, extraordinarily ill with a genetic disease that finally kicked in at age 16 in Israel, actually. And it was almost like the intensity of that 
experience coupled stitched itself into the landscape there and into the mythology. And I became very fascinated also going into college with why it seems like there's someone behind the story of Jesus who's more authentic. And why has Christianity become such a tool for oppression, ecocide, genocide? What goes wrong? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that that has really become a dominant question. So I, my first book that I wrote that I'm actually hasn't sold yet, and it's historical fiction, and it's a reimagining. It's a feminist ecological reimagining of the Gospels from the perspective of Mary Magdalene. Mm. So approaching Jesus, Rabbi Yeshua, the Jewish rabbi magician storyteller, from her perspective, rewilding him. So my my. Interest in the divine, the sacred masculine comes from this initial inquiry into Yeshua, Jesus, as being this nature teacher rather than this kind of ascetic, disembodied, moralistic, yeah, abstraction. Yeah, I, yeah, yes, 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 all of it. I love to this word you use, the rewilding, right? Because back to what you were saying earlier about time. And I think that we're at this really interesting crossroads, you know, as a human species where, you know, we're in this process of what I call unbecoming. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Right. Like (laughs) of everything that we have been taught to believe and that this system of beliefs or what i will call system of illusions yeah is has been so very toxic and detrimental at so many levels and in so many ways it's cost us our imagination and it's cost us our you know our inner knowing what i call our inner wild like our yeah. instinctual understanding of who we are and also how to behave yeah Um, with each other, with other species. Yeah. So it's just really powerful what you're saying. And I, I think you're, you know, you've got some, some other thoughts. I'd love to talk more to you about in your experience or in your exploration. I know that you do quite a lot of talking about patriarchy as colonized inside of the ideas of the masculine and yeah, I wondered <laughs> if you could tell me more about that. Yeah, that's what the book that I'm actually, that will be coming out probably in fall of 2022 is, is about, has been, patriarchy has been conflated with masculinity, but masculinity is not patriarchy. Patriarchy is a bad, bad story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. And it's not good for men, and it's not good for women, and it's not good for all the people who come in between and and flow along that rhizome that connects all of the different pretend genders. Um, but my interest has always, I'm very, very interested in the movement between oral cultures to textual alphabetic cultures, and from uh, Paleolithic to Neolithic cultures to the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Where did we go wrong? When did things really start to become hierarchical, violent, divided from the natural world? And so my attempt at looking at these masculine myths is, are there healthy masculine myths? Are there fertile masculinities that we've ignored for a long time because we've just been focused on the last 2,000 years since Christ? Right. Quote, unquote. And have you discovered any? Yeah. I mean, I... 
I've had a lot of figures who kind of have been my guiding themes in this project. And the big one is Dionysus, who kind of had a smear campaign by the Romans because he was actually, he's not really a wine god. He's a god of, I mean, he is a wine god, but he's a god of liberation. Mm-hmm. He's, he, he was actually the divine inspiration behind a lot of revolts against the Romans. He's a, and he's even a pre-Greek god, even though he's always in, poetically represented as being a stranger, as arriving fresh to some city. He's actually, he exists in Linear B, which is one of the oldest versions of Greek found on Crete. He's a, he, he goes all the way back to Minoan culture, early Bronze Age god. Okay, yeah. So I think of him as being kind of this vegetal, androgynous, nature-based, kind of chaotic figure who can guide us into a more participatory, ecologically situated masculinity. Mm-hmm. I love the word chaotic. Yeah, that he's definitely a chaotic figure. Well, and, and that, you know, again, like that for me is recently that word means so many great things, chaos. Yeah. Will you share? Yeah. Well, so I've been really exploring this whole idea of like, this re- all of the repressed feminine energies and all of the ways that we have really been taught to avoid all of what i believe you know has kind of created us living in what i call the upside down because it's yeah <laughs> it's these very places that are actually our power centers especially as women for us to rewild ourselves or for us to reconnect and plug ourselves back into these you know, avoided places, our emotions, our intuition, looking at chaos, even as a feminine, right, as a creative force. Yeah, that it's that it's a gift, you know, when chaos comes, you know, I often think of the goddess Kali. Oh, yeah. So there's so many ways and you just talked about Dionysus, you know, and that again, that chaos, which I think, again, in, in these figures who have an integrated or a sacred masculine, right, that they're also deeply integrated with feminine energies and that those together yeah. kind of can create these, you know, powerful models for reimagining how to be with some of the chaos that we're experiencing now. Exactly. And I mean, one of the guiding principles I've been working with is this idea that is kind of really problematized neo-Darwinian ideas of progress that are actually just kind of uh, a scientific interpretation of capitalism. Right. And early Victorian economics. Um, They don't actually have that much to do with science. So it turns out that um, evolution is much more transversal. It happens horizontally through gene transfer and that our very cells are, were merged between like mitochondria and different prokaryotes. So for me, something I've been thinking a lot about in relationship to the divine masculine and the divine feminine is it's a much more symbi- symbiogenetic relationship. You know, it, it, there's, there's no hard boundary. It definitely flows back and forth. We're all entangled with each other. We can't, mm-hmm. we can't, Take, we, we are constituted by our relationships rather by any kind of sterile imaginary idea of individuality. Right. So yeah, we all have both of those modes, those nodes, those, those masks within us, and they provide very different medicines at different times. 
Yeah, it's it's very, very true. I love that you use the word medicine, because I think, again, you know, reimagining or even kind of unearthing some of these older mythologies, right, can be so helpful if they're used in that antidotal or medicine yeah. way. And I, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, there's this, this Greek word pharmakon, and it can mean medicine or poison. It means powerful substance. Mm-hmm. And I think about these myths as being like a pharmacon, which is, for me, myths are the fruiting body, the mushroom of a much more a deeper mycelium that is hyphal and connective below ground and emerges to sporulate to serve a certain kind of moment and then goes back underground. So a myth, if it's rooted in this deeper earth-based pre-patriarchal wisdom, can be the positive pharmacon. Mm-hmm. But if you deracinate it and uproot it from its land-based ecological situated knowledge, it becomes pharmacon as poison. Mm-hmm. And it can be something that can be used to create fear in people, to manipulate people, and to, yeah, to shutter their imaginations, to create the upside down, as you were saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What, like, Sophie, do you feel, well, let me approach this from a different, from a different angle. Yeah. What do you see the opportunities for us right now as a human species? Like, where do you think we're at? Whoa. Well, The one thing I will say is I have never had less of a sense of what's going to happen tomorrow in a very concrete, personal way. Mm -hmm. So in a certain way, I have no idea. I've never had less of an idea of what is to come. Mm -hmm. I do think that this is a moment to begin to participate in the aliveness of the world and to really start to realize that we are within a world of witnesses, that Mm -hmm. everything is, is... Every decision we make is we're making in the company, in the audience of aliveness, of of the fungi, of the grasses and the animals and the ecosystems, the swarming consciousness that constitutes a, a landscape. And I think that the more we draw attention to that artistically, somatically, intellectually, practically, through activism, I mean, activism can look really, really different. And I think sometimes that we we feel paralyzed because we're like, I don't know how to be an activist. I think that, you know, there's this artist who I absolutely love. He's a writer, he's an activist, he collects folk music in England, and his name is Sam Lee. And he he leads these nature walks or like groups out to sing with the nightingales. And the nightingale populations are dropping in England. So it's a way of both creating, collaborating across species. I think that's something I'm really interested in Mm -hmm. is collaborating across species, across identity politics, uh, across privilege. I mean, across species, across ideas of consciousness. I mean, communicating and collaborating with stones. Mm -hmm. But yeah, his work singing with the nightingales and bringing people out to collaborate with the more than human world seems to me to be a really good example of what is possible. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you were like, whoa, big question. And yet, I also really feel that your response is so thoughtful and so elegant and so true. Thank you. (laughs) That it occurred to me that you would have something interesting to say about that. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, and what the other piece that I really, you know, love and, and think about also is that we are 
we are so on this, like, it's like, well, yeah, what is possible when we're unbecoming, when we're actually uh-huh. like in a state of starting to dare to believe and experiment, you like dare to believe in the things we've been taught, you know, are not real, yeah. right? It's like, again, going back to the upside down, it's like, what if everything we've been taught exactly the opposite is true? Yeah. And that what then becomes possible. And so you were sharing how in some ways you've never been less certain about yeah. what's happening. And what I'm also making up about that is that you're calling that a great thing. Yeah. I mean, I think something really interesting is I think oftentimes our narratives are impoverished by patriarchy, by dominant paradigms that are very wedded to capitalism, to objectifying our relationships to kind of imaginary dualisms that keep us separated from the environmental world that could erotically and creatively nourish us. So I think sometimes our dreaming is limited. So when our dreams break down, suddenly a much wider realm of possibility opens up when we stop narrativizing. I mean, the thing I'm always thinking is like, I don't want to be the author of my story. I want to be in alignment. I want to be in flow. Mm-hmm. And those moments when I start to overly narrativize my life are very problematic. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think too, we're here as these spiritual beings having a human experience. And I love, I love the expression, like when we align, we are divine. And when I think about our access in the divine or like that portal into our own divinity, that's where I believe imagination and like where anything is possible, right? Imagination, miracles, magic, all of that exists. Yeah. I mean, for me, divinity is really, it's this term that this philosopher used, Merleau-Ponty, and it's the flesh of the world. It's this understanding that every time you push back on the world, it pushes back on you. That the dominant appetite, the dominant theme of of being is the desire to touch and be touched. Mm. And for me, it's that moment of touching into, into the aliveness of the world that's where I locate my divinity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. So what, where do you want to take our listeners? Like, what do you want to tell us about that kind of, in addition to what you're writing, has, gives our listeners more of an understanding of like, your why behind all of this? Hmm. What is my why behind this? I think we are in a moment of emergency. And I think that actually provides us with a really powerful gift, which is we get to get close to the ground about what we really care about. And I think this is a moment not to make art to make art, not to write to write, not to do things for some kind of externalized reason, but to really ask yourself, what is your emergency? And your emergency is going to be different than someone else's. I mean, maybe your emergency is, you know, the river behind your house. Maybe it's a particular story that you have to give birth to. Maybe it's childcare. Maybe maybe it's your own family. But I think this is a moment to get really, really clear about the things that we care about. And, you know, something I always think about is Adrienne Marie Brown writes that she wants movements that aren't an inch thick mile wide, but a mile deep inch 
what a, a mile the deep opposite, and yes. wide. And I, I've been really thinking about like depth as being the depth of experience, the depth of your relationships, the, your, the, you, your rootedness in your landscape, a practice that is my why and I, is something I want to offer to other people is, do you know the names of the beings that you live around? Do you know the names of the grasses and the mushrooms and the trees and the indigenous people who stewarded the land there? Do you know the names of the types of weather that happen? of the geological formations, can you become intimate and involved and entangled with your landscape? And I think that that's actually a really transformative practice to actually root yourself back into a situated ecology. And you'll get radical when you start to do that because you'll start to care. I love that. It's so true. Yeah. Uh, I love how you used the word emergency because I heard it as both em- emergence, right? Like it's a time oh, yeah. of emergence it and is, it's yeah. an emergency that that word suddenly became something out- coming out of you uh, that was new for me in, t- in, in terms of hearing it as yes, it's urgent and it's about everybody becoming emergent exactly and i think that's the you know what is it called like the strange attractors that suddenly chaotic entropy coalesces into incredibly unpredictable action and i think this is a moment where you know climate science is not figured out (laughs) you know you sit down and you actually read about long-term study of ice coring and we have no idea what comes next There's no way to predict it, but there's also no way to predict how emergent human behaviors are going to shift. So emergence can be something very exciting. We can make ourselves into those strange attractors who completely shift a system into a coordinated, creative, participatory relationship with the world. So, so true. And how about, I'm looking actually at like the many questions that when I ask you like, hey, what do you want to talk about? (laughs) because I'm really kind of free flowing in this conversation because part of what I want to bring to the listener is the same magic. I I think you just naturally exhibit. Thank you. That there's a way, well, there's a way Sophie, like that you occur for me kind of like like a miracle, like the way that you think, the way that you express, the way that you create is so liberated. And so yes to your questions, right? And then there's a part of me that's like, no, 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 ask about that. Like, where does that liberation come from? Where? Well, I think to be perfectly honest, I got extraordinarily ill at 16. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've experienced Many, many, well, I think they're, they're classified as NDEs, near-death experiences. Okay. My life, my life has bottlenecked a bunch of times, and it's bottlenecked in a way where everyone around me thought I was going to die. And that's hap- every single time that happens, all the chaff, all the extra falls away, and it's, it's a winnowing process. It's been extremely intense, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone else. But every time it's happened, I've come out of it a little clearer about what I care about mm-hmm. because I think, okay if I don't have a lot of time or if time is in some way limited, I would like to do exactly what I know is important. I would like my relationships to be deep and powerful and close. Mm. And 
Yeah. So I, I think that this is not this this type of thinking that I've arrived at has not been effortless. I think that it can seem like that because I love poetry and I love beautiful images. And I think beauty is one of the most redeeming qualities of life. But, you know, the underworld is what brought me here. Right. You know, I, I've been constituted by underworld. and I do now. And when I emerge, it's to share. But I wouldn't ask anyone to, to follow me through that process. <laughs> Right. You know, and so for our listeners, you know, when I, when you say the underworld, I, you know, my relationship to that is also through a descent, like through, yeah, through it, what a, like a dark night. And that, yes, absolutely. It's kind of those major life occurrences, which for me was this kind of, conjoining of a series of events, which included health, divorce, death, right? Like all of the big, big things. And that really end up being the disguised gift when you reemerge and you realize that you have been brought to another place, another time, another initiation, that there that somehow you come back, it's like down seven, up eight with something else to bring the world, you know, like a gem from the depths of the murky deep. And it's it's a powerful, silty, there is just so much talk about mythology there. Yeah, I mean, one of the guiding stories for me has been Scheherazade, Mm. which is, you know, this is a person who is telling stories to stay alive. Yes. You know, the the king kills a woman each night that he marries. She keeps him from killing her by telling these stories. But the narrative impulse comes from survival. It comes from this adrenaline-fueled attempt to save herself. And for me, storytelling art has always been, and these bottleneck moments, I've always come out of them and said, okay, what story kept me alive or what, what story is going to keep me going? So the stories that I've, I've arrived at finally have been the ones that have worked for the longest time. Yeah. And l- recently it's been these stories of the masculine, these kind of rewilded older Neolithic figures who have been really helpful for me. And, you know, I, <laughs> I come from a place where I, I used to be really angry at men. Mm, mm-hmm. I've experienced great violence at the hands of men, like pretty serious violence. So I, I, but that anger didn't heal me. It didn't heal them. And so this has been a more complicated, tender reentering into, into that, that place where the anger lives. Well, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. I think, you know, I can share that same sentiment with you and that anger has never healed me. And so, you know, there's always this inquiry and I always pretend, right? Like there's nobody out there, Monica. Like it's it's all within <laughs> you, right? Like yeah, that yeah. that playing with this understanding that like that alchemy, that change, that integration, all has to happen within for me to experience any kind of change on the outside. Yeah, yeah. And uh, do you mind sharing with us at all, Sophie, about the illness or the you know like what is it like an autoimmune? Oh, sure, I'll share. Well, it's connective tissue disease, which also predisposed me, and they don't know why this happens, but it happens for a lot of people, to this serious blood autoimmune disease. It's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome with mast cell disease. And because they're both so rare, they're considered orphan diseases because they Mm -hmm. get very little funding and there's no cure. And so 
it's been a very, it took me a very long time to get diagnosed. After I was diagnosed, it was both exciting and then extraordinarily terrifying because suddenly you have a prognosis, you have, you know, you're going to die by this age, this is how you're going to die. And for me, it's always been about holding that information lightly and saying, you know, anything is possible. If we commit to one story, we'll live that story. Mm. And I think one of the interesting things for me has been pairing, so Ehlers-Danlos is connective tissue. It's collagen. It's my joints. It's my aorta. It's my skin. It's my veins, my eyes. And I've always loved mushrooms and mycelium. Mm -hmm. And they are the connective tissue of the soil and the connective tissue of the plants and the forest. So, and they are also undervalued and underfunded. And we are degrading the soil with pollutants and with clear cutting. So for me, it's about pairing that condition really intimately with a larger and also much smaller <laughs> microscopic life form mm. so that my survival is also intimately connected with something else's survival. And I think that that's actually a really helpful thing to do, which is to wed yourself to something else, to wed your story, your survival with something else. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that, you know, just philosophy, right? That because it does really speak to the interconnectedness. And I love that both literally and metaphorically that it, it offers so much more depth. Some, there's so much more available in terms of understanding <laughs> the connection, the connection. Yeah, we, you know, we're all doors that open both ways. You know, the more that we study bodies, the more that we see that we're just nested matryoshka dolls. We're just Russian dolls. Our guts contain so many microbes. I think there are more microbes in our body than human cells. And then you think about that on an even larger level, a cosmic level. We all constitute each other. Yeah, we sure do. So... How do you like to use story? Like, obviously, storytelling is a huge, huge part of who you are. Yeah. How would you, I guess, counsel us to use storytelling just in, in everyday life? Like, where would you point us as listeners to start using or, yeah, using storytelling as a way to connect at a deeper level, kind of like what you were just talking about with your autoimmune thing. I have two, I have two things that I've been meditating on. One is the most important stories are non-human stories, more than human stories to use David Abrams term. And so I would say, start noticing, start keying yourself to non-human stories, to the story of landscape. You know, what's been happening in your landscape over a hundred year period to noticing animals to noticing their behaviors over the period of a month. Is there a woodchuck in your area that you continually see? So key yourself to, you know, we, we get a lot of human stories, but there are, there are many more. There's a polyphony of stories that make up your world. But also, and I think this is really, really powerful, is to start telling a different story about yourself every day. And to see if that loosens any knots. Is mm. there a way you can tell a different story? And, it, and that you can be curious about the stories you've told. Yeah, like, give me an example, Sophie, like telling a different story to ourselves. What I make up about that is we all live in some kind of narrative about our lives. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing you say is try, try a different way 
to tell that story or come at it from a different perspective? Yeah, I mean, I I think of it as almost like being light on your feet and dancing. For me, Mm. you know, so this blood condition I have predisposes me to anaphylactic allergic reactions to pretty much everything Mm -hmm. in a very unpredictable way. But after I've reacted to a food, I I get a story about that food or that experience. And it it can be very, very scary. I can think, okay, I can never eat that again. But it's always helpful for me to say, you know, maybe this health thing worked before, maybe it doesn't work now, or maybe something new is going to work. So trying to not get stuck in an idea of how something is supposed to happen or work. Yeah. So I, for me, it's very paired to health, but I think it could also happen, you know, it happens in relationships, you know, we get into romantic relationships and we think that they're supposed to progress in a certain way and we're living the story, but we're not in the story. <laughs> Suddenly right. we, we've changed. We're not the same character. And so sometimes it's very helpful to journal or to talk with other people and to ask other people, you know, this isn't a solitary thing. Storytelling. I used to run these storytelling gatherings with people once a month, mainly with fem- femmes and women. We would get together and we would try and tell stories in different ways mm-hmm. about trauma, about abuse, about mental health, and trying to just see if other people could help us shift the, the, the plot. I so love bring, that. bringing other people in, you know, relationships are just the most important thing. We can't, there's no such thing as a rugged individual. We need help. We need to ask for help. Right. Well, there's also this idea too that I, I'm thinking of as you're speaking of this. And one thing that I've been practicing over the years since the Revelation Project came into my life is really this idea of like yeah. being in the present moment and also knowing that in that present moment, I am in a co-creative process with everything around me. And, yes. and sometimes instead of telling myself, the story, like what happens next, it's more about more to be revealed. Yeah. That it's it's really about pausing from thinking about an outcome, knowing that there's so much more magic available to me if I can dwell in the present moment as well as the mystery of the unfolding of what is to happen next, that that somehow keeps me liberated and free versus has me kind of live out a narrative that hasn't even happened yet. Beautiful. Yeah. And something I've been thinking a lot about is this philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, writes about how time, we actually perhaps create this readiness potential from the future that mm-hmm. we we think backwards and pull ourselves physically forward, that we live physically forward, but we think backwards and that we're constantly being kind of attuned to our future minds without knowing it. And that also to me is a kind of almost erotic, juicy place of being like, I am being pulled into place by myself, but I can't even see it. And I need to enjoy this process of dancing with an unseen partner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it it's it really does take some some allowing, right? Because, yeah. because letting be, yeah. Letting be. And just kind of I think, you know, so many of us have just shut down that imaginative process, right? And so often I'm really also looking for other creative individuals because I go back to the village and the card that we chose, 
I know, yeah. And how the village in that way, and for our listeners, we chose the the wild unknown archetypes. The card we chose before our episode today was the village. And, you know, the village can be both a good place and not a great place, depending on what needs to happen. And we're at this just really, I think, creative time where we... It's like the indigenous people have been saying to us, like, it's time for you to dream a new dream. Yeah. And it's this idea of like the imagination and this daydreaming to allow ourselves the the magic and the opportunity of the daydream without the pragmatism, without all the ways, again, that we've been conditioned to be realistic, logical, right? Like, and just to not, to practice just getting rid of those pre-imposed boundaries that keep us from really imagining something different. I love that. And that's something I've been really thinking about, you know, in the West, we've really colonized Buddhism and we've made it into this product that will optimize our, our progress. And it's become mindfulness. It's become something that makes you a better worker. And I lately I've been telling people, oh, I don't care about meditation. I care about reverie and daydream, unstructured cognitive play that taps into the deep life as, you know, one of my favorite philosophers, Bachelard writes about how reverie is the way we get in touch with this non-human world, this deep life. And this imaginative force that is, you know, it encompasses humans. It's probably very good for us, but it's not just human. Mm-hmm. And that happens, yeah, through this daydreaming, this unstructured, unproductive, but also very productive, very chaotic, to go back to your term, kind of spiritual mental play. Well, yeah, and and back to what you said, you know, about getting radical about it, because that's when we start to care and, yeah. you know, where we're no longer kind of in this trance, you know, that keeps us along this trajectory of like eminent self-destruction, you know, unless yeah. we friggin' go with the program here and disrupt the trance. So it's you going know, to a trance to get out of the trance. Right? I love that. Yes, yeah. yes. That there's there's just so many different ways to kind of avoid catastrophe. We like chaos, not catastrophe, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's just so powerful too. And you know, and when At this point in my life, when I had my own descent, was when I started really recognizing all these ways of seeing and being in the world that included, like when you, and I had started working with uh, shamans early on to do some healing and just really understanding that everything is everything and pulling from it all as energetic sustenance and knowing that, you know, we're nourished by so many different interrelated forces and elements. And so, you know, there's these, again, back to the upside down, like we think there's this one visual world, you know, and for me, the Revelation Project is that unveiling yeah. Of the world that we think we know and into that way that we can often be consumed with the mystery, right? With the wonder of it all. And that's that ah, place that I can breathe again. Yeah. And and breath, you know, we our voices are not human. 
They are spirit, ruach, you know, the, the root of all the words for soul is breath. Hebrew, it is yes. Moment. It's, it's, it's sacrament. It's our participation. Our voices are participation. They are fluid. They are interstitial. They are. They carry microbes from us out and into the world, and then, you know, phenols and all sorts of other environmental stuff back into our bodies. Um, it's that kind of infinity loop of participation. Yeah. So, I love what you said. It's the most tender thing is to realize that we don't know, because when we feel like we know everything, we 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 begin to shut down. Hmm. So Sophie, you've, and of course, I'm like pointing to your name because I'm about to ask you about Sophia. (laughs) Yeah. And so yes to the divine sacred masculine. What, um, if I were to say, you know, what does Sophia, you know, and the divine feminine and Mary Magdalene, like tell, tell me more there. Well, Mary Magdalene for me is, I've written her as a human being. And as a, a Jewish woman who is raised in a time of imperial control and violence, and also radical restriction from her own people. So Mary Magdalene, for me, is a, a kind of revolutionary, intelligent, complicated human being. But the divine feminine, for me, I've been almost thinking of it as divine animacy, mm. rather than, than conflating it with a gender it's something much more material, much more soil-based, much less human for me. It, it's more that kind of spark that inhabits. And, you know, divine spark is this Gnostic term. And Sophia is this Gnostic idea of the goddess that comes down into the world of matter. Mm-hmm. And so it's that spark that's alive in everything. That It's that spark that reflects back your own spark. Yeah. So for me, divine feminine, if it's anything, it's animals. It's my encounters with mountain lions and bears and lakes and mountains. And I really love, I love Kali. I love Inanna. I love Artemis. I love all of these female characters so, so much. But for me, humans aren't big enough to hold them. Mm-hmm. They, they are ecosystems. Yeah. I love that. They are ecosystems. And... I get curious here too about, you know, I have, and I'm sure you have too, been very much kind of in this leaning in and really listening, interpreting. I don't even, again, there's sometimes language doesn't serve. Yeah. Oftentimes it doesn't, but really kind of looking at the return of the divine feminine as something that feels very needed, yeah. very essential. And I wondered if you have thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, women have had a really hard time for a long time, but women have had a really hard time paired with nature, which we are, mm-hmm. and with queer people and with femmes and with, with all sorts of different identity classifications mm-hmm. that it's actually, you know, the only people who have been having a very good time are a very small group of people. So for me, the divine feminine is a plurality. It's an embrace. It's saying everyone is invited to this party. Mm. <laughs> the, the, so the divine feminine coming back for me is it, it's a paleolithic idea. It's that idea that in, you know, in the, the ancient caves, humans do not dominate. 
yes, we have goddess figurines, but we mostly have images of animals. <laughs> and it, even in Minoan culture, which is relatively recent as compared to the cave paintings, human beings are not the central focus. The focus is on bees, on spirals and oceans and bulls. And so for me, the divine feminine is always reorienting us from the human. It's always saying, where is your landscape? Where are your animals? Where are your plants? How are you involved with them? Right. I I love that. It's like what I'm hearing you say is like reorienting, repointing us back to the matter, to what matters. And to the garden. Yes. (laughs) And to the garden. So, so good. Yeah. So good. Well, okay. So my final question is, drumroll, is there any question that I haven't asked you that you would like me to ask you? No, I mean... If you have anything else you want to ask, I'm open, but I'm just, I'm thrilled to have spoken with you and with someone who's so awake and curious. Yeah, I guess my one thing, my, my one tenet that I've been living by is I want to live in the world in, in an interrogative way, a conversational way. And mm. so I felt like, I feel like that's also how you, you work. So that's very inspiring to be involved with. Very much so. In fact, I never know. And that's what I love. I never know kind of like what's going to get created, knowing and trusting that whatever happens, right, is is its own process. And so I'm always looking for dance partners and uh, you're a fabulous dancer. So thank you so much, Sophie. It's been an absolute pleasure to, you know, bring your work um, into the world in a bigger way and to, I'll be just so thrilled to continue kind of following and watching because I think, I think you have a lot to teach us. Well, likewise. And I think, I think you're doing something that is really important, which is there's no one story. Mm-hmm. There's so many different voices and what, and what you're doing is, is you are facilitating storytelling. So, you. And, you know, you're like the mama mycelium. You're <laughs> connecting all the trees. Um, I love that. I love that yeah. so much. And I can say the mama moncilium, right? Like, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, and for our listeners, I'll be sure to have Sophie's links, of course, to her books and to uh, what will be her latest work, as well as her new website will be coming soon. So more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.